Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant and a co-founder of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. And I'm Karen Bodnar. I am an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harbor UCLA Medical Center and a general pediatrician. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant. And this podcast is sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Just so you know, the content of our podcasts does not necessarily reflect official policies or protocols of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Are you ready to go? Hey, Karen. How, how is everything? Great. I am so excited that we have made some tech technological advances to our podcast. I think it'll be a, a better audio quality now for all our listeners. Yeah, you'll be louder because you're not you're talking on the big Skype computer now. That's great. <laughs> to the new century. Right. Yeah, good. Great. So um, it was nice to see you at the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine meeting. Oh, it was all it was fun as always. Yeah, it was great to see all of our friends too. And um, you're going to review a couple articles um, that were presented at that meeting. Yeah. We're not really presented, but reviewed. Yes. So um, Dr. Edelman always likes to sort of hit his top 10 um, hit parade of articles that he um, thinks were important for the year. And, you know, this is sort of of articles that were not in the main um breastfeeding journals. And so um, stuff that is smaller and maybe many people might not have noticed throughout the year. And so I just picked out two that I thought were worth mentioning. Sounds good. And the first one is um, titled In Hospital Formula, Formula Use Increases Early Breastfeeding Cessation Among First-Time Mothers Intending to Exclusively Breastfeed. And um, this was by Chantry um, et al. in the Journal of Pediatrics, and it is um, different from some of the previous studies in that the authors um, adjusted for intention um, using a scale. And so basically the background of this study was, as we know, there's a lot of formula feeding going on in hospitals of breastfeds that are supposedly, um, sorry, the infants that are supposedly breastfed. And um, the in-hospital supplementation is associated with a shorter duration and exclusivity of breastfeeding. And so in this study, the authors um, used term um, singleton babies, and they, this was done in a hospital that had a policy consistent with the 10 steps um, of baby-friendly, and mom's initial prenatal declaration of intent was rated on an infant feeding intention scale. Then they used um, the baby's feeding pattern along with interviewing the moms regarding formula use, if there was any, and why it was done. And they followed up to see what the breastfeeding rates were at 14, 30, and 60 days. And then they checked if there was full um, breastfeeding um, versus partial breastfeeding versus none. And so the study had almost 400 mothers and 47% of those all supposedly intending to exclusively breastfeed received 
um, formula supplementation in the hospital. That is a lot. Wow. Yeah. It was a really, I've seen some studies before that have showed 20% supplementation and I have suspected for a while in some of the settings I've been in that it has been higher. Certainly there's a lot of variability, but I think that that's a pretty shocking number. Almost 50% of these babies were supplemented. So um, after adjusting for the intention, um, in-hospital supplementation was associated with lower maternal education, lower family income, African-American or Asian ethnicity, maternal obesity, C-section, delay in first holding of the infant, and maternal infant separation. Mm. Um, the increased odds of not fully breastfeeding after discharge were significantly correlated with all of the reasons to supplement that moms gave, which I'll touch on in a moment, except for use um, of medication in the mother or maternal, or sorry, except for maternal medication use or medical indication. And the, the reasons that moms gave for supplementing were low supply, signs of inadequate infant intake, which included weight loss or jaundice, poor infant behavior, separation from their infant, um, pain, maternal incapacitation, maternal medication, um, and there's a there's a category listed as psychosocial reasons. And they have a nice um, graph that I'm not going to go into huge detail, but if people feel like looking up this study, it breaks down all those reasons and day one, two, three, and then how those are correlated with decreased um, breastfeeding. Interestingly, the results, which were all significant, showed that in-hospital supplementation um, was the babies that were supplemented only had a 36% rate of exclusive breastfeeding at 60 days, um, whereas babies who had no in-hospital supplement had a 67% of exclusive breastfeeding at 60 days. Um, and after correcting for the intention and demographics, the adjusted odds ratio was four times um, the risk of not exclusively breastfeeding if babies were supplemented. Hmm. Similarly, cessation of breastfeeding by 60 days, so no breastfeeding if you were supplemented in the hospital, was 30%. And the percent of moms who were not breastfeeding at all at 60 days if the baby was not supplemented was a third of that at 10%. Hmm. So I think that the results included a couple of interesting things. One was that the best in predictor of not exclusively feeding was the number of feedings the baby got in the hospital um, and use of the bottle as opposed to cup feeding. So they did follow that, and um, cup feeding was found to be less detrimental. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting, that cup feeding didn't have nearly as much impact as actually giving a bottle. And, and I've seen some studies before on cup feeding that have led me to um, believe that that does have less of a negative impact. When I am um, supplementing for medical reasons in the hospital, I try to cup feed or try to teach the family to cup feed and encourage the nurses to do that since I'm not usually the one who's actually there feeding the baby. Um, and... So cessation of breastfeeding in this, 
first 60 days was correlated most with the number of feeds, um, not the volume. Um, all those reasons that we talked about for supplementing were significantly correlated with cessation except for maternal medication use. And all this together, the data supported the conclusion that supplementing isn't a marker, but the actual cause of decrease in exclusivity and duration of breastfeeding. And while there are um, some limits to this study, I think that the main one is that it was by maternal report and there wasn't correlation with the chart and looking to see if there were medical reasons. Um, it was a large study. It wasn't adjusted for intent. And I think that sometimes um, when I'm going around and teaching about breastfeeding, people are looking for a study that they can have in their pocket to pull out and show people and say, you know, there's, there really is harm that's being done to these moms who want to breastfeed when we keep their babies and, you know, let them rest and give them a supplement. And so I like this study um, for that purpose. I think it's easy to understand and hopefully it'll be passed around to a few people who haven't learned yet about the um, hospital practices that affect breastfeeding. Yeah. I still wonder if um, it's, I still think it could be a marker of difficulty because if a woman has, for example, full intention of breastfeeding, but she has a medical problem such as obesity, where she really does have reduced milk supply because of that reason, it's a marker because she still maybe she may have difficulty with full feeding later on. So, I mean, things happen. And in addition, I think there's a difference between intention and once you have a baby, um, you know, that intention is overridden by anxiety. And so the question is what percentage of those moms were primips who were usually much more anxious about how things are going versus a multip. These were all primips in this. Oh, study. these were all primips. Okay, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of anxiety. Oh, and yeah. I both know there's women with their first babies have so much more anxiety about you know what's going on with their babies than moms who've had you know two or three under their belt already. So I still think it could be a marker. I'm not com completely convinced that just because they. Um, we're able to control for intention that it's the cause, you know? Yeah, I think it, it's really interesting. I mean, when you look at studies that show um, hospital settings where people are sort of very free with formula versus those where they're not, and you see the, the big difference in moms who, quote, tended to breastfeed, meeting their intention if they're exposed to more of the 10 steps versus those who are not. Mm -hmm. I think that sort of goes to, to showing that what we, what we do to them matters. But I really agree with you that teasing this out more is important. So when I look at this, you know, chart I mentioned that, that shows, um, let's see, breastfeeding pain versus um, maternal incapacitation the breastfeeding pain, the number of babies being supplemented is going up on day two and day three as moms frequently do experience more pain mm -hmm. if they're having trouble with latch particularly. Um, and and that is something that I agree it can be independent. You know, if people are having pain, it, it can't, it's not always easy to fix. But some of them 
you know, low supply, which I like in this chart, it's presented in quotes because we're always, you know, it's our expectation of what is a normal supply that causes right. us low. I think the way that that is approached frequently by, quote, the night nurse, dun, dun, dun. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I hope there are no and, night nurses listening. <laughs> I think people who have worked in this area for a long time know what I mean when I say that person who is, oh, I can't stand to hear the baby cry. They're, you know, Mom needs to get some sleep. Yeah. yeah. Versus, oh, I'm going to go in and teach this mom about hand expression. And wow, look how relieved she is to see that she's got colostrum. Right. To give it a little bit on a spoon and to see... You know, and to have that talk, and it, it's very time-consuming. Mm -hmm. And so converting people over to my world, where it's worth that time because you see the impact it makes on families. Um, I think we we still are working on convincing people that 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 is the higher ground. But you know, obviously, you and I are spending our time making this podcast. We're trying to. Right, exactly. Well, you know, so the other issue, like cup feeding doesn't seem to interfere as much, have as much association with, um, you know, this impact on drop in exclusivity and not nursing. And when you think about families who are willing to cup feed, um, they're, if they're really laid back and patient and not freaking out about the baby's weight, they're willing to give it a try because cup feeding has a learning curve that is not as fast you know, it's 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 takes longer to to get proficient at cup feeding and to trust that it's not going to hurt the baby um, versus bottle feeding, and so that itself could be associated with less maternal anxiety, less parental anxiety, and so I yeah. think that I think you know with any study you want like biologic plausibility, like why is it? Why would a bottle in and of itself a formula cause this? without like the mother and the father operator involved, you know what I'm saying? No, but also I think the other the side of that, which is, is still to your point, is that in settings where the staff thinks that it is worthwhile to teach cup feeding or, you know, they they don't have bottles on the floor, mm -hmm. the different message that they're sending families and they're not passing out the two ounce the evil two ounce bottles mm -hmm. where people are just going crazy and they're they're if you're taking the time to teach cup feeding you're taking the time to give messages about paste bottle feeding and about i, I just think taking more time to yeah. teach about how to support breastfeeding even breastfeeding that's not going that great at this minute um, and giving those little words of even if your baby needs this now in three days, they likely won't. Let's follow up closely. Right. There's so much overlap. I agree. There's a lot of confounding that can happen. Yeah, even if you control for intention. But it was, you know, it's a good, it's a good step. And maybe they consider it a pilot. Maybe they'll move on. You know, maybe they can do more work on that particular, with that particular. Kind of passing it around and convincing everyone to supplement less. <laughs> yes. Yes. Right. <laughs> okay, so um, do you want to go over the second study that... Um... Yeah, I'll go ahead and... Um, it's very um, brief. It okay. was just uh, um, induction of breast milk pertussis-specific antibodies following gestational um, Tdap vaccination. And so what they, they looked at, the authors, this was published this year in the journal Vaccine. They looked at 
the um, amount of antibodies to pertussis or whooping cough that were found in breast milk after moms were immunized while they were pregnant. And I thought this was worth mentioning um, very briefly, just because particularly here in California, we're having an epidemic of whooping cough and the youngest infants are most at risk for serious complications and death. However, we, you know, can't give them their, their vaccine until they're two months old. And so one of the ways that we help protect babies is to vaccinate moms. And the CDC now recommends vaccinating all pregnant women with the Tdap between 27 and 36 weeks of gestation. And so they authors looked to see if this gave additional protection. Um, there's been thought that it will give moms antibodies IgG, which will cross the placenta and the baby will have them when he or she is born. And they were looking here to see also if milk collected at two days and then at two, four and eight weeks postpartum would have um, specific antibodies for pertussis. And I thought this was really interesting because I knew of this recommendation um, from the CDC, but I've found that in the area where I live, despite the epidemic, it hasn't, I haven't seen the obstetric providers implementing it. And so um, sometimes when I see prenatal visits or a pregnant mom who's with, you know, visiting, taking their two-year-old to come and see me and I see them pregnant, I say, have you gotten your your booster and a lot, a lot of times I'm hearing no. And so I was really curious. And um, essentially the study did show that there was increased IgA um, in the breast milk specifically. Um, and unfortunately they haven't gone on to do testing of the babies to see whether or not, you know, what the effect is of the absorption. But I thought it was an interesting study and I, it was an opportunity to maybe um, let some people know about that recommendation if they weren't aware of it. And hopefully even, you know, people who are listening to this that know pregnant women or talk to obstetricians can say, hey, do you guys have the flu shot in your office? Are you doing this? Because this is just the time of year when it's really important. Right. And I think the thing um, for people who may not know a lot about um, the different types of antibodies in breast milk, that mom oftentimes has a lot of immunity to lots of childhood illnesses in the form of IgG because it's a past memory. And IgG does not go through the breast milk very well. So we can't say, for example, that mom who is immune to chickenpox is going to pass on antibodies to chickenpox through the breast milk to the baby. And But the mom is passing on antibodies to pertussis because she was recently vaccinated. So she's still making IgA and probably IgM which has a little better transmission into breast milk, right? So, yeah. so there's, um, so we're seeing a higher level of immunity to pertussis in breast milk because of the recent immunization versus an illness that she had had many years ago. I think it's a great opportunity to try to get those youngest babies um, a little bit more protection and the, the, biological plausibility here is, you know, IgA is so important in breast milk because it's biologically, you know, babies are supposed to spit up. Some of that milk stays in there, you know, ends up in their oral pharynx and it's there to try to trap any of those pertussis bacteria as they're trying to enter the baby. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Great. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting. I thought that was exciting. Great reason to be telling moms that they could at least, if they could at least nurse for the first month, it would be great. Mm -hmm. All right. So um, I'm going to review an article that was actually talked about a great deal on the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine listserv among our members. And this article is called Early Weight Loss Nomograms for Exclusively Breastfed Newborns. The first author was Valerie Flairman, MD, MPH, and, et al. And she's done a number of studies. She does a lot of breastfeeding physiology studies. And so this is an interesting article that looks at how much weight do breastfeeding babies really lose in the first week after birth. And there are some small studies that look at this, but we don't have like really large population studies on this. So we all say, oh, you know, it's normal, you know, 8 to 10%, but we don't really have the numbers to back that up until this article. So according to this article, about 60% of all newborns in the, in the United States are exclusively breastfed for the first two days. And you and I, as I'm sure many people in our audience know, that infant weight loss in breastfeeding babies in the first couple days is expected. And even in formula for babies, it's expected. So the authors thought that they could develop a nomogram or basically a graph, much like we use for bilirubin, that describes how infants tend to lose, how much infants tend to lose per day, so that protocols could be established on best management based on weight loss at a given age. Um, so that's kind of how we manage bilirubin is we look at how old they are, what the bilirubin is, and then decide if they're at high risk for needing lights or low risk. And that kind of tells you like how often to be checking the bilirubin. So the authors took weight data from about 109,000 newborns who were over 36 weeks of age, and they were all born at a Kaiser Permanente Hospital in Northern California sometime between 2009 and 2013. All of these babies were healthy and they didn't require any specialty care, meaning they didn't have to go to the NICU or to an intermediate uh, nursery. They did record the baby's gestational age, their birth weight, their method of delivery, uh, their race, ethnicity, timing of inpatient feedings, and uh, the types of feeding, whether it was formula or breast milk. So some of these babies actually did receive formula, but um, their weight, the, their weights were only included while they were breastfed. So as soon as they started getting formula, they were knocked out of the study. So they're so it's almost cross-sectional in a way because some babies um, had, you know, only some weights were included, and other babies, um, other weights were included. And so they defined excess weight loss as greater than or equal to 10%. So about this population, about 43% were white non-Hispanic. So they felt that the population was pretty racially diverse. And 76% of the babies were born vaginally and 23% were born by C-section. So the first thing that I thought was interesting about the weight loss was that um, there's a huge difference, a significant difference in the weight loss in the first 24 hours between babies who are born vaginally versus those who are born C-section. For vaginal birth weight loss, the average weight loss at 24 hours was 4.2%. The average weight loss at 48 hours was 7.1%. And the average weight loss at 72 hours 
was 6.4%. So there was a little bit of a weight gain um, from 48 to 72 hours. And interestingly, 5% of babies lost 10% by 48 hours. So that's actually like one in 20 were already at the 10% weight loss by 48 hours, which I don't think is too, which doesn't surprise me really. For C-section babies, uh, the average weight loss at 24 hours was 5%, so a little bit more, 8% at 48 hours, and um, 8% and about 8.6% at 72 hours. So you don't see as much rebound in weight gain, and you know the weight's starting to come up between 48 and 72 hours among the C-section. And 10% of babies born by C-section lost 10% or more of their weight by 48 hours. So 5% vaginally, we're down 10% at 48 hours, 10% via C-section, we're down at 48 hours. So that's like twice as much. Okay, so let me make sure that I'm following you before you go on. So okay. the vaginal deliveries, uh, the average weight loss at 48 hours was 7%. Correct. And the, the reason that I wanted to highlight that is because I often in the past have said to people, and, and this is true in the study for vaginal, I just sort of have generalized it, but the average weight loss for babies is about 7%. And thus, by saying that's the average, that means more or less about half of the babies lose less than that and about half of the babies lose more than that. And so I don't freak out at every single baby that loses more than 7%. Right. And now you can add, according to this study, 8% of C-section babies, um, I'm sorry, and the average weight loss at 48 hours for C-section babies is about 8%. So it's a little bit more than vaginal deliveries. And about one in 10 C-section um, delivered babies will lose 10% by 48 hours. Right, so right. That's, that's not an insignificant number. I mean, I, I have to say, I see that in my practice for sure. There are those babies and you're like, wow, you have lost weight rapidly. Exactly. Yeah. And I should say that in the study, um, there was um, some judgment, there were some judgment calls where if babies were like down 10% by 24 hours, for example, they threw that data out, like they didn't include that baby, they figured the weights were wrong or something like that. Or if a baby was down like 13% at 48 hours, they would take that data out too. So there was a little bit of a judgment call. Um, so they picked, they took, they kept the numbers they liked, and they got rid of the numbers they didn't like, which does change the data a little bit. But on the other hand, it, it makes sense, kind of, um, but there are no, you know, strict rules for it. Yeah, um, interesting to see the adjusted and the, like, raw data. Right. Therein. Right, right. Um, so what they're, so they said that um, at 72 hours, if you combine the groups between C-section and vaginal deliveries, by 72 hours, more than 25% of all babies were still more than 10% down in weight. Um, so that's a lot, too. That's a lot. Um, generally, though, when you look at the nomogram that they built, um, it's like a J-shaped curve. So the weights come down, and then between 40 and 72 hours, the curve starts to come back up again to the second part of the J. Um, and so they, but the other, the other interesting thing that they did is they took the babies who were born in 2009 and 2010 and compared their nomogram 
to the babies that were born in 2011 through 2013 and found that the patterns were like the same, which is interesting because, you know, Kaiser, I believe, has been working on their baby friendly steps and they're probably more honed or more skilled, you know, by between 2011, 2013. And yet the patterns look the same, which made them in, you know, sort of conclude that their data is valid. That's sort of interesting considering that babies that were supplemented got thrown out. Yeah, because, well, they figured that by the time, yeah, they, they just wanted to develop nomograms for exclusively breastfed babies. They didn't want, once the baby started formula feeding, then, you know, it it isn't as much of a reference as it no, is a description. I, I agree with that judgment completely. My point is just comparing the sort of, if it was pre-baby friendly days to the post, mm -hmm. I don't know that you would have seen any difference because the babies that weren't getting baby friendly service and thus ended up get, being given formula, they right. got thrown out. So I don't, I don't know if I think comparing the earlier years to the later years was. Oh, I see what you're saying. Oh <laughs> yeah. Cause you've thrown, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Although, you know, yeah, it's a good point. Unless they're, unless you're thinking if they're baby friendly that they're feeding more often, you know, they're the ones who are breastfeeding are given more support than they were in 2009, 2010. It's really, I mean, 109,000 babies. That's, that's a lot of babies. Yeah. Great number for a study like this. So they actually developed a, a website called uh, newbornweight.org, www.newbornweight.org. And then you can actually go and use their nomograms. Um, so they conclude that there's a big difference between vaginal and C-section babies in terms of weight loss. They think it has to do with C-section babies not nursing as well, and then the administration of large volumes of IV fluid before a C-section. So then the babies are born and they have this artificially high weight. Um, but they also point out that the amount of weight loss um, at 48 hours for both groups, like 5% for vaginal deliveries and 10% for C-sections, um, is, uh, is huge. There's a huge difference. So, um, so my feeling about this study is that, first of all, there's a fair amount of homogeneity with the hospital environment for all these babies because they're all Kaiser Permanente hospitals. And there's probably, you know, protocols with how things are done in the Kaiser Permanente hospitals. So I think that it would, there may, it as as much as I appreciate the fact that these are breastfed babies and they probably were well supported because it is California, of course, it's not, you know, <laughs> it's not the Midwest, it's not the South, but still, you know, it's still one hospital system. And so having it be in other systems would have been helpful. And um, there is no description of baby friendly practices. So we don't really know, you know, to what extent the, they were supported and could the weight loss have been even lower among the vaginal deliveries had there been, um, you know, more support. So interestingly, I don't know if you're aware of this, but there's a, a difference in policy between the Southern California Kaiser Permanente and the Northern California. Oh, okay. So Northern California decided not to follow the, you know, not to engage with Baby Friendly USA. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But developed their own toolkit. And actually you can find it online. They share mm -hmm. it. So you can see which of the 10 steps they have implemented and which they have not. And it's interesting um, to see the differences. But if anybody's interested in, in what their Northern California system is, 
you can find it through the Kaiser website. Interesting. Yeah, I remember when they declared that uh, a while ago. And all of these babies were born at Northern Kaiser Permanente Hospitals. Mm-hmm. Um, the one thing that they also said is that they used the info about when babies started formula feeding um, from the electronic medical record when the nurses documented when the baby started formula. But as you and I know, a lot of feedings happen sort of behind closed doors, so to speak. You know, the parents are not entering the data into a computer. And so the nurses, you know, a time of, you know, shift change, you know, maybe the nurses leave at three o'clock, the new nurse doesn't walk in there till 5.30 and they didn't catch all the feedings that happened, you know, between, you know, two o'clock and 5.30. So they could, they admit in their uh, limitations that they could have missed some formula feeding. And the, and the other thing is that there's no date, two things I thought were interesting. There's no data on parity. So, you know, you and I both know that there's a delay in lactation, a slight, you know, there can be a greater delay in lactation among primips. Um, and so it would have been interesting to know how many of these were multips. And the other thing is that this is Kaiser Permanente. So in, in, in our area, we don't have Kaiser, but I'm assuming that Kaiser um, members are mainly people who are employed, which means if they're employed, it's a different demographic than those who are not employed. And so I don't know if Kaiser um, takes so, medic medical assistance or not. They do in Southern California. Okay. Um, and I would presume that they do also in Northern California because I don't know how many years ago they allowed um, mothers with Medi-Cal, which is Medicaid, to go to um, any hospital. You can go to private hospitals. And so they they don't necessarily have to be members to deliver. Oh, okay. And they treat those patients the same, and they keep them in the hospital the same amount of time as they do private. You know, they're members, um, in my experience. Um, and I, I would presume that's the same in the North. Hmm. Okay. Well, I would just say that as you were talking about that first study about the women who had the strong attention to breastfeed and you said, my, there's still a lot of formula feeding going on among people who have a strong intention. Well, if you look at these moms, if you assume that they have a strong intention to breastfeed, you know, 5% of vaginal births and 10% of C-section births may be encouraged to supplement because of the weight loss. So, um, you know, there are, are a lot of issues that we have clearly that, um, you know, that lead to these high weight losses. Yeah, I um, I have to say that your comment reminded me of this, like, thing that comes up a lot, which is this sort of sometimes people use the word supplement synonymously with um, formula. And so, for instance, I, you know, there's some hospitals where babies are being supplemented, even term healthy babies with donor human milk. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, you know, certainly is different from breastfeeding at the breast and it may not be applicable to this study. But one of the things that I am, am doing in my practice is just, you know, those babies that I think are at higher risk, mom had a C-section or she's obese or whatever, sort of following the, I love the Stanford, um, newborn nursery website where it has like babies at risk and it shows different categories and suggests starting her early hand expression and giving just a, you know, small of mom's own milk supplement early 
trying to keep babies from getting to those slow numbers because I think experienced providers, I, I look at the baby more than the scale, but I think people with less comfort, they get really hung up when they see a certain number. Right. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, they do. Right. And, and it doesn't mean, and, and that's the problem in the hospitals. They all want numbers. You know, they, the, mm-hmm. the staff needs numbers. They want to know when should we do this. And, um, and it's important when you're dealing with a lot of different people and trying right. to get directions to nursing so you don't have to be called every five minutes. It's different from me. When I'm in my clinic, sometimes I'll realize like, oh, I didn't even do that calculation of what is the baby's percent birth weight. Because I looked at the baby, I heard the breastfeeding history, and I am not worried. Right. Um, But I think when you're starting out and you don't have that clinical comfort, it's something to start from. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, those are pretty interesting. And we'll see what happens with these nomograms. I'm looking to see what, you know, what kind of responses people have. Here, if anybody is incorporating them into their practice or. Yeah. Yeah. to us on our Facebook page or like us for our better audio quality. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I like you. I, yeah. Okay. Never mind. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's late here. Boy, boy, we have a snowstorm and it's nasty weather and I guess I should probably go to bed. So I'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care, Karen. Coming back to California to get out of that snow soon. Absolutely. Yeah. In February, I'll be there the best time to visit. Okay. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. If you have any interest in the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine or any questions or comments about this podcast, please email us at abm at b as in boy, f as in frank, med.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a few weeks.